Hey everybody. It is great to see people in here for sure. <laughs> it has been um, a little weird leading worship and um, just doing normal stuff around here and not having anyone in here. It feels like we're doing rehearsal all the time. So it's really refreshing to see all your faces. Missed all of you. Um, thanks for coming out. But uh, I think we'd all agree that we're in some really weirdo times, yeah? Like, there are things that have been going on in our world that are hard to make sense of. And there's rules, there's regulations, there's changes, there's differences. And some of these that, that uh, I've really noticed over the past few months is like going to Home Depot. And uh, my wife and I, we built a deck on our, on our uh, back porch during the quarantine. And you have to wait in line to go to Home Depot. And it's super frustrating when you're buying tons of lumber and you're just waiting. Um, Chipotle, that's another one. Trying to get a meal from Chipotle and they only let five people inside of there, that's frustrating. Or like this building, right? Like we look around the room and things look different, yeah? Times are changing, things are happening. But one of the things that I've noticed more than any other thing that's changed is become, it's, that it's become a lot harder to love people. I don't know if you guys have felt that, but there's no more like, hey, why don't we meet at a coffee shop for a half hour and hang out? Hey, why don't we go out to lunch today and catch up? It's been a while. It's become a lot more intentional and a lot more purposeful to love people. And when Pastor Eric asked me to teach tonight, he told me I could teach on whatever I wanted or uh, I could teach on the second half of First Peter chapter 1. And uh, I read through the chapter and I was like, man, this is it. So I'm really excited to teach uh, through this chapter tonight. But I, I think one of the things that we're learning is it's easier now more than ever to get sucked into a, a worldly perspective, Yeah to really start to focus on our fears, on our doubts, on our insecurities, on our differences. And the list goes on and on. What we're going to study tonight is how love and grace and a heavenly perspective can take these stressful and uncertain times and lead us back into the peace and the love of Jesus Christ. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll get started. Lord, we come to you tonight. Lord, thankful that even though we don't know what's going on, Lord, that you do. And God, as we study what it looks like to live a life of holiness, to live a life of love, Lord, I just pray that you would challenge our hearts to leave this place tonight motivated and inspired to live a life that reflects Christ, to live a life that reflects your love. Lord, we're excited, we're expecting of what you're going to do here tonight, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Hey, so why don't you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 13. And it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. And I just want to clarify real quick this whole gird up your loins thing. So basically this comes from 
an Old Testament patriarch, and what they would do is they'd wear these like really long robes, and they would wear this big belt called a girdle, and the robes are really flowy, they're hanging around, and when it came time to get ready to do something, or uh, I don't know if they had to be agile or whatever, but they would take all of the excess and they would tuck it into their girdle so they'd be ready for whatever was to come. And he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. And what Peter's calling us to do here is to take the baggage of our minds the things that distract us, the things that slow us down, the things that prevent us to do what God's called us to do and prepare our minds for action. And living the way that God wants us to live means that we have to gird up the loins of our mind. We have to get rid of worldly thinking, and we have to fixate on the things of God. We have to take the irrational, and we have to bring them back to rational. We have to decide every moment to fix our eyes upon heaven. And the idea in this verse is kind of like, hey, roll up your sleeves, get ready, it's time to go. And I don't know, this is, I don't know if you guys have ever played basketball, but it's kind of like when you play basketball with your friends and you're all just hanging out and you uh, have a friend named Corey and he loves playing really hard defense on me. And so we're always joking around and it's all laughs and then like, I'll cross him up, and he'll, he'll, he'll admit that. And uh, then he'll get really mad, and you could always know when someone's about to play really serious defense, if you've ever seen basketball, when they, like, pull up their shorts really high, and they, like, get down like this. And that's what Peter is saying. And I asked my wife, I know that's a pretty masculine, like, example, but I asked my wife, like, hey, what is something that you would say describes this for women? And she said, put your hair in a ponytail. So... <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. But then Peter goes on and he says, be sober. And this isn't in the sense of not being drunk or anything like that, but it's in the sense of we have to take an honest look in the mirror and we have to look at ourselves. We have to take some time to self-examine and realize what are the things that are pulling us away from our relationship with Christ. And Hybert says about this being sober, he said, it denotes a condition free from every form of mental and spiritual loss of self-control. It's an attitude of discipline. And Peter goes on and he says, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter's doing here is he's referring back to earlier in the chapter. We see in, in verse two, he greets us with grace. We see in verse 10, of chapter 1, he tells us of a grace that came to us in Jesus that was predicted by the prophets. And now he goes further and he says, the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus comes back. And guys, the only way that we can stand before Jesus on that day is because of his unmerited favor and grace and that's at work in our lives, Yeah. There's nothing that we could do. There's nothing that we could say that would ever earn our spot in heaven, but it's because of God's grace and his favor at work in our lives. And here's something I want, I want to just say about grace tonight. Grace is not something that we just needed in the past, right? Like when we, when we got saved. It's not just for the present, even though we live in every moment in grace, according to Romans 5, 2. But it's also for the future, 
that when grace will be brought to us, and how cool is it to think that we've only just begun living in the grace of God, that for eternity we, li- we get to live in that grace that abounds forever. And I think it's easy for us as believers sometimes to think or to forget that we need God's grace every moment and, and every day. And our mindset sh- tends to shift from earlier on in our Christian walk, like, oh man, I was a wreck. I really needed Christ at the beginning of my walk because I was a, I was a rough person. But, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and I've figured a lot of things out. And the more I walk with the Lord, uh, the, the less I need God's grace, whether we realize it or not. And uh, it's kind of like your parents. Uh, I'll never forget, I was, oh man, I think I was like 14 or 15, I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, and me and my dad got in this huge fight. And I remember telling my dad, like, you think I need you for stuff? Well, you're wrong. I have a minimum wage job making $5 an hour at Chick-fil-A now, and I think I just got a car. And I'm like, I don't need you for anything. And my dad's like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, old man, I don't need you for nothing. And I left my house. I I slammed the door, and I was like, this is it. Like, I got to figure my life out. And I went to my friend's house and came back home later that night, and literally my entire life was on the front lawn. My clothes, like my, I I don't know what else I owned at the time other than clothes, but, and so I remember thinking like, oh man, what am I going to do? My dad met me at the door and he's like, you're not coming in the house. Like you can go out on your own and you can figure it out for yourself if you think you got it. And I was super stubborn. I was like, fine, I'll do it. So I packed all my clothes, all my stuff. I put it in my car and I started calling my friends, but we're like 15. So no one has their own place or anything. I'm like, Hey man, um, I need to stay at your house for the foreseeable future. And they're like, my dad said no, so you you can't come over. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So I called my grandma. I'm like, hey, nanny, um, everything's fine. I love my dad. Can I come over and stay with you for a while? And she's like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, nothing. Like trying to totally omit the situation. And so my grandma let me stay at her house. And what a 48 hours, let me tell you. I was like, I got to get back to my house. This is rough. So I called my dad. I apologized. We made up. But that experience like really helped me realize how much my parents provided for me and how living under that provision impacted my life. And I see, and I, I think that for some of us tonight, we've been walking with the Lord for so long that we've forgotten all of the things that God provides for us on a daily basis. And we've started to try and do things in our own strength. And if that's you in here tonight, and you've fallen away, and you're trying to do some things in your own strength, come back to the Lord. It's so much better His way. You know, we sing that song, Defender. It's so much better His way. You know, we see this in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Going on in verse 14, He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to to the former lusts as in your ignorance. And Peter here is giving, starting to give us an outline of what living a holy lifestyle looks like. Relying on God's grace and not being conformed to our former selves. 
And fulfilling God's call to holiness requires that we, as obedient children, break off the lifestyle of the world and embrace the culture of God. Live a life that's set apart. Live a life that's focused on glorifying God. And he goes on in verse 15 and he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And that's a loaded statement. Like we hear that and God's like, hey, be holy because I'm holy. And I, I'm like, I, I can't do that. There's no way. And sometimes we hear these statements from God and it's easy to become overwhelmed. It's kind of like when my wife asked me to unload the dishwasher and I'm like, there's like 20 dishes in there. That's going to take me forever. And I'm immediately overwhelmed. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, she would say I'm not kidding, but it's okay. <laughs> But no, like this idea of being holy, it's tough, right? The idea behind holiness is not for us to be morally pure, but it's the idea that we're set apart for God. And this idea of of knowing that God is separate, he's different from creation, right? We would agree with that. Both in his nature, in his perfection, in his character— But when we don't grasp the concept of seeing God as this separate thing, something so holy, then we don't see his love as a holy love. We don't see his grace as a holy grace. We don't see his justice as a holy justice. And and so on with all of his characters and his attributes. But, But when we get in that mindset, we end up missing it. Because when we catch a glimpse of his holiness, of his justice, of his love— that's so separate from anything in this world. We just want more and more and more. And C.S. Lewis has a quote about this, and I love it. And he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And see, holiness is not so much something that we possess, but it's something that draws us into relationship with God and then grasps us. But the remarkable thing about God is that instead of kind of building a wall around himself and separating himself from us because of his holiness, he calls us into relationship and he calls us into closeness with him. So we can share in his apartness. And he says to us, be holy for I'm holy. And what I love about this is, is it's really an invitation into deeper relationship with him. Because his holiness is only something we can experience and grow in as we spend time with the Lord. And the more, spo- the more time we spend with God, the more like God we want to be, yeah? Have you guys ever, like, hung out with people so much that you start to, like, take on their mannerisms? And you start to do things that you didn't know you were doing until you're doing them, and then your wife is like, why are you doing that? That's so annoying. Like Dan and Jay and I, um, we work together uh, probably like 40 or 50 hours a week, and then we hang out outside church some too. And one of the things that Dan does is he starts talking in this like weird Australian accent all the time. He's like, has anyone seen my stapler? And then Jay will be like, oh, the stapler's gone. Oh, no. And then like I just start doing it too. I'm like, oh, the case is a missing stapler. And like we don't know, and we just talk like that for like a half hour. And then someone will come in and be like, why are you guys doing that? And we're like, oh, we don't even know. And then my wife is like, where did you even pick that up? I'm like, Dan does it, but I just, 
am with Dan all the time. So, or like, I never thought I'd get to the place where I'm in like my mid to late 20s and I'd see another man wear a fanny pack and be like, I might want that. <laughs> you know, like at first I'm like, mm, no, that's so dumb. And then the more I see it and the more like Jay's like, yeah, it's my fanny pack. I'm like, I think I could do that. Like I maybe could do that. I haven't, but it's still, it's still on the table. <laughs> but it's not like Dan and Jay and I sat down one day and we came up with like a list of like, hey, um, when you guys talk in, in like a weird Australian accent, uh, it makes me feel closer to you. So if you guys could do that, it would like really just show how good our relationship is. Or like Jay's not like, oh, I'm wearing a fanny pack, so you all will wear fanny packs. But what happens is when we spend time with each other, we become more like each other, and it's the same with God. And in this light, when God says, be holy for I am holy, it isn't as exhausting as it first sounded, or it's not as hard to comprehend when we know that God just wants to spend time with us. He goes on in verse 17, and he says, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And that stay here, uh, it's a reference to us being aliens or sojourners here on earth um, and our home being in heaven. In 18, he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, and without spots, or without spot. And if we as Christians call on a holy God for guidance, for help, for anything, we have to remember that God shows no partiality. And in this, this is why Peter is saying it's so important to live a life of holiness, of dependence, of closeness upon the Lord. We haven't been saved by our idols or by gold or whatever we fill our time with, and Peter's reminding us, hey, guys, this is where it all started. It started with Jesus. Saying we should live a holy life on earth because of the sacrifice of Christ and how costly that was. We're not saved by our conduct or by tradition. And Peter even goes on to describe this frame of mind as, as living justified by the law as aimless. It's worthless. Because we can't be saved by any of these things, amen? Amen. And seeking after those things to diminish the sacrifice of Christ. And I love in verse 19, he says, but we've been saved with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And Peter here is speaking in reference to the completely sinless character of Jesus. And that if Jesus wasn't without blemish or he wasn't without sin, he wouldn't have been worthy to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer. Peter's basically like, hey guys, remember in the past when like you tried the whole idols thing or when you tried to live your life according to the law or like live in the tradition of your fathers and none of that stuff worked out. And then Jesus was like, hey, I'm here, and I'm here to wipe away all this stuff. So if you just come in relationship with me, we can do this. And the call to godly living makes sense when we compare it to the price that was paid for our redemption. The blood of Jesus 
did not save us so that we could live as trash or as garbage, but to remind us of the motivation of why we want to live more like God. Because I don't know about you, but I've tried a lot of things on my own, and I've tried to do a lot of things in my own strength, and they never end up working out. And it, it, it just gets to the point where I do something or I try something, and it blows up in my face, and then I'm like, man, if I just would have trusted God or listened the first time, this probably would have never happened. You guys might have some stories about that. But he goes on in verse 20, and he says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. But what was manifest in these last times for you? Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And this verse right here, like, literally blows my mind. Like, let's just think about this for a second. He says that he was foreordained before the foundations of the world. That before time began, God had this plan in place for our redemption. Like, and when you start to put that in perspective, before God created the world, before God created Adam and Eve, he knew that we would sin, and he knew that we would fall short. And still he, for some reason, saw us as worthy of such a sacrifice of his son so that we could spend eternity with him. That should, like, do something to your heart. Like, he could have just been like, oh, man, that is a lot to go through for those people. But he didn't. He gave his son so that we could spend eternity with him, and it's crazy. And he goes on in verse 21, and he says, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And see, the entire plan of redemption is for us to believe in God. And when we believe in God, we can be assured that we won't be disappointed because of Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection from the dead. He goes on in verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And you can underline that, that love one another fervently with a pure, pure heart, because we'll come back to that. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, or but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And that love one another fervently. See, holy living is impossible if it's not accompanied by love. To be a Christian means to have a sincere love for one another. We would agree with that, right? We're encouraged to love each other fervently and passionately. And when Peter talks about what holiness looks like, he talks about loving each other. And it's easy for us to be like, yeah, I love all people because Jesus told me to. We know that Jesus was God, right? So practically, how do we see Jesus love people? We see him going out of his way to listen to a woman at a well. We see him feeding the 5,000. 
We see him blessing the leper, healing the blind man, hanging out with outcasts. We see him healing the temple official's daughter. We see him sharing life with people and getting into their space like the disciples and like Zacchaeus. We see him hanging out with people who have opposite worldviews than him, like the Samaritans. And we see him living out on a daily basis the greatest commandment. And I just want to take a second and, and say, here, here's what love isn't, okay? Love isn't attacking political parties on your Facebook. Love isn't dismissing people when they express their feelings. Love isn't putting your opinions over the word of God. Loving people means that when a specific race of people says they're hurting, we come alongside them and we build them up. The Bible calls us to love one another fervently, to love one another passionately, and there's no stipulations on this love at all. It isn't love people if they agree with you. And it isn't love people if they believe what you believe. And it isn't love people if they look like you. It isn't love people if you want to, it's love people, period. And Peter, this whole chapter, has been calling us to live by a higher standard, to live more like God, to push aside prejudice, and take on the perspective of God. And see, this is an issue that I think we would all agree is prevalent in today's media, in today's culture, in our society. This, this idea of being loved, of feeling loved, and showing love. But what Peter is saying is that love is intentional, that love is unconditional. Love isn't passive, it's, it's fervent and it's real. It's building bridges, and it's preaching Christ's love every day. And loving people is being in relationship. It's getting down to the nitty-gritty. That allows us to grow in trust and in relationship with people to get to the point where we can preach the gospel, that God so loved the world he gave his son. And we see that exemplified in Jesus throughout Scripture. The parable of Jesus leaving the 99 for the one, it's not irresponsible, it's love. Saying blessed are the poor isn't rejecting the rich, it's love. Jesus hanging out with prostitutes isn't condoning their lifestyle, it's love. And this is what relationship looks like, walking side by side of people, understanding Jesus was about the individual, and that's love. We need to stop focusing on the, the issues, and we need to start focusing on people. Because when social issues arise in our world, which we're seeing all the time, and we stop thinking about them as issues, and we start thinking about them as people, it really changes the perspective. We need to get off of our soapboxes and we just need to love people. See, because we can walk by issues and we can ignore issues, but it's a lot harder to walk by a person. It's a lot harder to, to ignore a person. And we're not supposed to ignore hurting people. And as the church, we need to stand in the gap for these people that are hurting and stand for love, this holy love, this godly love. We're to, as Peter says, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 
And where are you at with that tonight? Like, I think in large, as, as a society and as a church, like, we're good at loving people. But that doesn't mean that we have it all figured out. That doesn't mean that there isn't room to grow. That doesn't mean that we can, can seek God on how we can love people better and then lead them to the love of Christ and the gospel. And Peter says we're born again through the word of God. So we have this new life through Jesus, right? But we also, te- we also see that it tells us that we have to love one another. And if the word of God endures forever, then we're both obligated and empowered to live out the kind of love and holiness that Peter's calling us to. And he goes on and he says, the grass withers and the flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, but I think we can all agree that the word of the Lord uh, has endured, right? Like it's endured centuries of manual transcription, of persecution, of people trying to destroy it, of changing philosophies, of critics, of neglect. And even in, uh, in 303 AD, there was an emperor, Diocletian, who demanded that every copy of the scriptures in the Roman Empire be burned. And he wasn't successful. And then 25 years later, when Constantine came into power, he uh, hired a scribe to, to basically transcribe the Bible and, re- and uh, make copies of the Bible on governmental expense. But it just goes to show that for hundreds and hundreds of years, people have been trying to get rid of the Bible, yet here it is with us today. And I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, God's word never dies. God's word never changes. There are some people who think we ought to get a new gospel for every year or even every few weeks, but that's not what, that's not what Peter's notion was. He wrote and he was divinely inspired to write concerning the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And since God's spirit and God's word lives inside of us, we always have this potential to bear fruit. And we're both obligated and we have the ability to have, and as Peter put it, a sincere love of the brethren. Perhaps we could say that, like, if we need more love towards people in our life, then we need more of the incorruptible seed that Peter's talking about. To, to implant the word in our hearts, to nurture it, to water it, to allow it to grow. And it's again about spending time with God and taking on his character, focusing on biblical truth and not worldly skews. And I read this quote uh, this week, and I'll, I'll read it now, but it says, A society that sees itself as broken and not dead will invariably conclude that society needs to be fixed rather than redeemed. Until we realize our need for Jesus, others' need for Jesus, we're always going to be trying to fix this problem that the only solution to is redemption. And to sum it all up, Peter is saying that there's a lot of things that matter, that nothing lasts forever, but what's important is to love God and to love people. And what holiness looks like is loving people and pointing them to Jesus. It's not some formula. It's not some list of behaviors. It's not some checkbox that we have to mark. It's spending time with the Lord and spending time with people. And I 
we see this in Luke chapter 10 with the Good Samaritan, where Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. Uh, And I just want to read that kind of as we close up tonight. And in uh, verse 25, it says, On one occasion, this is Luke chapter 10, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In his reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to, go, happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And see, guys, this is love. I find it really interesting that in this, in this parable that Jesus' Jesus's example of love wasn't a priest. It wasn't someone who had the same worldview as him. It was a Samaritan. Helping a man who was broken, care, caring for him, being a light in the darkness. And uh, this week, Rich Velotis had a tweet, and uh, he said, The Good Samaritan story isn't just an example of compassionate spirituality. It's a critique against religious passivity. Because pursuing and living in the holiness of God can't happen without an active, fervent love for others. And I want to take some time tonight uh, just to pray for that. You know, if you find yourself in here tonight having some hardness of heart, towards God through all this craziness. You found yourself turning away, trying to do stuff in your own strength. Maybe you have some hardness of heart towards others. I know quarantine, you've been spending a lot of time with the same people. And maybe your heart has become a little bitter or there's been some hurt in your family or some things that have happened that have caused division. And we want to pray for you tonight that God would soften your heart and that he would take that bitterness and turn it into sweet. And if you find yourself learn, losing compassion in your life and taking a general attitude of, of it, I don't care anymore, like we want to pray for you. I just want us to leave here tonight inspired to love God and to love people more deeply and intimately and more purposefully than we did when we came in. Because at the end of the day, that's what holy living looks like and that's what matters. So let's pray and then Uh, We'll get back into worship. Lord, we thank you for this time.
Lord, where we can gather together, where we can see what holy living looks like, where we can be challenged to love one another more deeply, where we can take some time to examine our hearts, to put on biblical truths, to push away the lies of the world. Lord, and for those of us in here that have been struggling with hardness of heart, or who have been struggling with loving you or others. Lord, would you just speak to us in this moment? We want to pe- be a people who are known for the way that we love. To be a mirror for Jesus Christ. To encourage people to walk more deeply in love in closer relationship with you. Lord, we're grateful for a time where we can worship, where we can come together in the midst of all this. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, for your grace that abounds for eternity. Lord, we give this time to you. Would you speak to us? Would you reveal to us where we're falling short? We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.